The Gestalt Gardener podcast is brought to you by Variscosity Vein Center, providing health assessment screenings and compassionate care to improve your vascular functionality and quality of life. Our doctors and vein specialists offer solutions to painful varicose veins, spider veins, and other venous diseases to our patients. Now offering complimentary vein screenings in Jackson, Madison, and Ridgeland. Information and appointment scheduling at varicosityveincenter.com. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. From MPB Think Radio, this is In Legal Terms, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill. I'm with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Boundary disputes, leases, real estate closings, they aren't everyday problems for most of us, but it's good to know in case you're having trouble. Today is your day. We're discussing property law with attorney Terry Little. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. You know, we talk about in law school that property is a bundle of rights. And uh, fortunately, we have experts like Terry Little to talk to us about uh, about real estate law. Um, and uh, like we had so many, Terry was on the show in November, uh, but we invited him back um, because we had so many calls last time that we didn't even get to touch on a lot of the topics that he was going to cover. So it's great to welcome you back, Terry. And could you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Richard, it's great to be back on. I always appreciate being a guest on MPB. Um, I've been an attorney since 1998. I started off working for an oil and gas company, primarily doing title work for them. I worked 13 years at a regional insurance defense firm, and I have spent the past nine years primarily focusing on real property work. Well, one of your areas of practice is a real estate in real estate closings and Liz mentioned those and I, we seem to be in a hot real estate market are you seeing a big uptake in your closings yeah we really have it's 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 been pretty amazing they say real estate's local but from what i've been reading it seems to be a national phenomenon where there's just been a great interest in uh, acquiring properties people are buying people are selling we seem to have uh, low inventory locally um, and I think that's probably driving prices up a little bit. Uh, but we've, as, as far as ratios, you know, we, we might typically have a 60-40 split of 60% purchases to 40% uh, refinances. And right now we're running at about a nine to one clip where we've got about nine purchases for every one refinance. And that means either everybody's already refinanced at the great low rates that have been available. And uh, now we primarily have just people interested in purchasing properties. Well, that's got to be a good thing. I think my wife and I had something to do with that because we we sold our houses at the beginning of the pandemic thinking, well, we better sell now because we don't know that anybody's going to be buying houses uh, over the next few months. And we were absolutely wrong. And, and if that's people invest in the stock market the same way, they say, what are you doing? We're going to do the exact opposite. And so we I think we kind of helped out uh, everybody else. But um, so, um, you know, we touched on this before, but if someone's buying or selling real estate, 
what should they do before they come and meet with a closing uh, attorney? Well, uh, typically, you know, if it, it depends if you've got somebody that you're going to use as a realtor or not. But uh, before, if you're a seller, I would say, you know, before entering into a contract, uh, get with your realtor, order a payoff of your mortgage, get an idea of how much you owe on the property. Uh, look at your property taxes and you can prorate those taxes so you know how much will be deducted to cover the property taxes at the closing because you will pay your portion of the property taxes from the first of the year to the closing date as a credit to the buyers. Uh, you can calculate your realtor commissions based on whatever those commissions are agreed to. Uh, and you can ask the closing attorney what the seller fees are and uh, calculate any other credits that you may be giving to the buyer. Doing all this should give you a pretty good idea of how much you will clear from the sale and help you determine what a good contract sales price is for you, just to make sure that you get what you want from the property when you sell it. This morning, we are talking about property law. We've got our friend, attorney Terry Little. He can answer your questions, whether you're talking about buying or selling or leasing or boundary disputes or in our previous show, Money Talks, which was heard on... Gosh, what is today? <laughs> June 15th, 2021. We even got into uh, a, a 1031 exchange. So we're taking all property questions today. Send us your emails, legal terms at mpbonline.org. Sometimes we use uh, terms like closings. And, and people don't necessarily really know what they are. They know they have to do a real estate closing. So what really happens when you do a real estate closing? So whenever we do a closing, there's, there's a lot of the stuff that goes on in the background that neither the buyer nor the seller see. Typically, um, at the point that we get involved, there's been a contract formed between the parties, and we are retained to go in and do a title search on the property. Uh, first of all, make sure that the seller actually owns the property, discover any liens that may be attached to the property that can be paid off at closing. And our primary purpose is to make sure that we pass good, marketable, clear title to the buyer so that they don't have any issues going forward, living there, or whenever they decide to sell the property. And then we handle the exchange of funds between the parties and any lender that may be involved. Well, you mentioned liens. So I've heard of mechanics liens and, and other types of liens. What, what types of liens do you see when you do title searches? Uh, so we would see we would we would search judgment rolls, um, judgment roll judgment rolls basically are judgments that are entered at the circuit clerk's office. Uh, if anybody had a judgment rendered against them, that would be reduced onto the judgment roll and would attach to the property and be a lien. List pendants are basically notices of lawsuits that might be that might be attached or connected to the property, and those get listed. Uh, in what used to be called a list pendants book, now everything is just reported electronically. Uh, there are the material men's liens that you mentioned, which is generally work that is done by, you know, an air conditioner guy or some sort of laborer uh, who has done work that hasn't been paid for, and he's entitled to attach a lien to the property until he gets paid. And then there are federal tax liens and state tax liens. Uh, if you ever have any issues. Uh, with either state or federal tax, uh, income tax is not being paid correctly. You know, it's interesting because when I was a uh, teenager, 
my friend's father uh, did a mortgage company. He was uh, a mortgage broker, and he would have us take us down to the Fulton County Courthouse in Atlanta, and we would go through the grantor uh, books and the grantee books, these giant books to go through and look, you know, to see to make sure there was clear title. And uh, as you mentioned, I think a lot of, sadly, a lot of my, my students now will never get that, that great experience because everything will be done online. Well, and you also get the uh, great smell of old, stale, uh, musty books that have been there since the uh, 1870s. You can actually go back and search the flow of title all the way from the state when they issue a patent to the first owners all the way to today. And uh, I mean, if you if you're really into historical records or want to see who's owned what over a period of time, uh, that's that's one way to find out. And all that's public record. And we'll have that on our genealogy show that I don't think we'll ever have, but it would be great. I'd love it. I'd listen to that if MPB had a genealogy show, but we don't. We're talking about property today, and we're going to go to Madison and speak with Janice. Janice, thanks so much for calling into In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Well, um, my question is about mineral rights in Mississippi. My brothers and I inherited our mother's mineral rights in Lincoln County, and um, I Right now, the company that was paying my mother some oil um, royalties says that they have to investigate to see if we actually inherited those uh, from our from our mother. So I was wondering if mineral rights are inheritable in Mississippi. Well, that that's really an estate question, and it's it's fairly easy. Uh, to determine how the property passes. If, if your mother uh, passed with a will and the will's been probated, then that would be a real uh, property interest that would be conveyed pursuant to the will. Um, and you would just, you would probate the will and that would essentially give notice to the world uh, that the uh, devisees in the will are the people entitled to the mineral ship, uh, mineral rights ownership. And uh, if your mother died without a will, those rights would pass pursuant to the intestate laws of the state of Mississippi, which just means uh, we've got a set of laws for people that die uh, that don't have wills, and it directs who receives what. And it's generally the, the, the first class of people are generally spouses and children with spouses receiving a child share. Okay. Yeah, um, okay. It was in the wheel. So, okay. Thank you. Thank you, Janice. Thank you. We appreciate uh -huh. you calling in. Now, we're uh, Professor Gershon, did you have a, a point you wanted just, to make? Just one thing to, to say to Janice, that, that uh, you know, the mineral rights are part of that bundle of rights that I talked about early in the show where, you know, property rights include a lot of different things. They include mineral rights, but People need to read, check their deeds, because when we lived in Fort Worth, Texas, we were over an active uh, natural gas uh, field, and uh, we had to, when we bought our property, and it was not unusual, sign away our mineral rights to buy the property. So you, you just want to make sure you check your deed to make sure that you haven't done that. Great to know. Let's go to Oxford and talk with Cynthia. Cynthia, thank you so much for calling in to In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Well, I have a question. Um, buying a property and there's an HOA, and so I inquired whether it was possible to rent the property because I know some HOAs are 
are putting in restrictions about that. I will be living in the house eventually, but not for, excuse me, not for a couple of years. Um, and they said at this time, rentals are allowed, but only for single families, only for a single family unit. And I got to thinking, that's rather strange. That's, who's to define what a family is? You know, I just found that rather strange. Do you have any advice on that? Or Yeah, that's, that's a good question and an interesting question. We do have a, an HOA is essentially uh, an entity that's created at the time that a subdivision is developed, usually by the developer, and it's essentially a contract between the uh, subsequent owners that runs with the land and there are certain conditions that whenever you're buying into that neighborhood you 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 become subject to uh, what they call restrictive covenants which are basically covenants that limit your use of the land and I would say as long as, as there's no violation of any federal law or the, of the Fair Housing Act then, then most things that an HOA uh, require uh, probably they can they can make stick, um, but there's usually so if if the HOA allows rentals now uh, of single family residences uh, and they don't so they're just limiting it to one family in in Oxford we typically have a lot of rental situations where we have uh, two or three or more non related parties going together and living in a house usually you know while folks are in college um, that's that's something to look into I would definitely look at the HOA language and, and see what it says I do know I think that the city limits uh, the city actually has an ordinance that limits the number of non-related people that can live together in a single family residence and I think that's limited to three but I haven't checked on that in a while so I could rent to like a, a couple that was unmarried um, or three graduate students or whatever, and that could be considered a family, a single family. I, I, I'm not really sure if that's the case. Um, usually, I would say that the family unit, that the people tend to have to be related. Um, Richard may actually know a little bit more on this than I do, but I, I would again probably get with the whoever's running the HOA and just and just confirm with them what they consider consider a family unit to be, and maybe try to get something in writing. Okay, yeah, that would be helpful because it just seemed rather vague, and I didn't know if it was sort of open to interpretation on their part, and whether that would be in violation of, like you say, the Fair Housing Act. Because I would hate to get in the middle of something like that. <laughs> right. If you're going to be a landlord, the last thing you want to do is get involved in any sort of litigation. Right, right. Thank you. Thank you, Cynthia. We appreciate you calling in. Richard, did you have anything to say about what the law says what a family is? I, you know, I don't, except that I think they're trying to prevent Airbnb and that kind of thing where you're just, you know, renting to a bunch of different people throughout the year. But the other thing is my my daughter lives in uh, during the year in her college in Orange, California, and they require the same kind of rule to single family. But what they do for college students is one of the students' families has to be on the lease and none of the other people. So you can't have separate leases for each student. 
and and that's how they deal with it uh, in Orange County, California. So yeah, you know, I think it just varies. Oh, HOAs. We've done a whole show on that. That's we might need to update that one, Professor Gershon, because that. That, that kind of gives me this, the scares. I've never lived in an HOA. I've only heard bad things. So I'd love to hear good things about that. You can send us an email with your questions. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're discussing property law with attorney Terry Little from Harper Little. And we've got more from Terry Little. We'll tell you where you can hear more about that next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. Not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill. I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. This morning, we're talking about property law with attorney Terry Little from the firm Harper Little. And if this topic, property, is of interest to you, we would love for you to check out our November 17th 2020 podcast when Terry Little was our guest, also discussing real estate law. We have a call that we're going to go to now. It's Mark in Past Christiane. Mark, thanks for calling into In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Well, good morning. Uh, I've got a neighbor whose trees and brush are overhanging my property line. Um, for meeting from a legal standpoint, I'm responsible for trimming those back. I was wondering if, there's, if, if that's accurate and if there's anything I can do uh, to get the, my neighbor to, to trim his own trees and brush. Interesting question. I, I, I think the law is basically that you do have the right to maintain the airspace above your property. So if you need to trim his trees, I think that's perfectly acceptable. I, I think the issues that people usually get into with trees on other people's property is whenever they fall and cause damage on somebody else's land. And again, it, it, that typically turns on whether or not it's a 
quote, act of God or something that could be expected or results from a bad storm, or whether they just have trees that are in bad condition and need to maintain them and fail to do so. And, and typically, I don't think liability arises unless somebody knew or should have known that their tree poses a danger and that they fail to take any sort of corrective action to uh, uh, kind of safeguard their neighbors from that danger that arises. And, and we've had some cases on that where we've had trees fall uh, along public ways uh, where the question became whether a city knew or should have known that a tree was in bad shape and needed to be brought down, whether there was negligence in failing to do that, or whether the tree was just brought down by, quote, an act of God. Um, what I'd like to do is get ahead of it and have the trees trimmed before some sort of act of God causes them to fall on my house. Is there any way that I can get him to trim his own trees? Um, I don't think you're entitled to go on to his property and uh, force him to do anything like that. I, I think probably the best thing to do is just to give him notice of potential problems, probably monitor the tree to the extent that you can to make sure that it's still in good shape and, and, and give warning uh, if you think that there is uh, any sort of uh, rotting of the tree at the base or anything that might cause it to fall onto your property and cause damage. I would do that in writing. I would have some sort of proof that I gave notice to them, uh, made them aware that might help you in the future. But I don't know of anything that you can do to actually force his hand at this point. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, and I'll take your advice. Yes, sir. Good luck with your tree, Mark. We're going to move up Mississippi and go to Tupelo. Bradley has called in. Bradley, thank you so much for calling into In Legal Terms today. What is your comment or question? Okay, pleasure. Thank you. Um, I inherited, along with my siblings, um, land in Mississippi, and my mother died without a will. So I cleaned up the uh, the uh, uh, the deed with an affidavit of airship. I'm just curious, how is the land held, you know, between us all? So whenever your mother, yeah, it does. Whenever your mother died and she died without a will, the land actually passed to the heirs at law immediately upon her death. And um, we, we, we typically look at this two different ways. Um, there is a, creditors of an estate have three years to go in and open an estate on somebody that has passed. If they've got any amounts that are owed to them or claim that they're owed to them, the creditor can go in, open an estate, probate their claim uh, against that estate. And uh, so the heirs take the property subject to claims of creditors for the first three years. After three years passes, those claims of creditors lapse. Uh, and then at that point, you do need something in the record that shows who the owners are or the heirs are under Mississippi law. Uh, you can do that either by filing a petition with the chancery clerk to determine heirship, uh, where there's a, a sworn complaint filed, where you list uh, who the known heirs are, and then you publish to unknown heirs to come forward and state whether or not they make any claim uh, to heirship to that person. 
And then once that's done, um, there's typically an order from the court that determines who the heirs are. That's filed in the courthouse and, and determines who the actual heirs at law are. And that's done usually within the first three years of the passing. And in cases where somebody has passed and it's been over three years, and we come to an issue of you know who is actually the owner of the property, who are the heirs, we do turn to airship affidavits like you used. We typically get two airship affidavits from non-related uh, individuals who knew the decedent who can testify under oath pursuant to the affidavit who the uh, children or spouses or the other heirs at law of the decedent are. Okay. My question was, how do we, do we all own it equally? Yes, you would, you would own it equally as tenants in common. Um, so you all have an undivided uh, interest, whatever that interest percentage is, just you take the number of people, you divide it by uh, 100% by that number, and that would be your ownership interest in the whole parcel of land. And that means you have access to the full use of the land uh, pursuant to that ownership interest. And so y'all own it as tenants in common. If anything were to happen to y'all, that interest would pass pursuant to your estate and so on and so forth. Uh, okay, once the, so we all, oh, I apologize, sir. Uh, so we all own the entire um, piece of land equally. We can use it all we can. Uh, the only thing we can't do is exclude each other. That's correct. Oh, brilliant. Uh, all right. Thank you so much, man. Yes, sir. Uh, brilliant. Bye-bye. Thanks, Bradley. We appreciate you calling in. Email us your questions. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We are talking with attorney Terry Little about property law. If you would like to learn about easements and roads, I've got a podcast for you. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Susan Buttress, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and host of Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking. Join us as we explore issues that relate to you and your family, from mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life disruptions. Whatever the issue, let's try to figure it out together. You can listen live Tuesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. I'm Jen White with NPR. 
If you're fortunate enough to have collected a few classic cars over the years, here's a thought. Give them a new life by donating one or more to support this station. They'll be matched with interested buyers, collectors just like you who know a great car when they see one. You free up some space in the garage, the classic car gets a new home, and proceeds support this station. It's a win-win. Thanks in advance. Donate your car, motorcycle, boat, or RV by going to mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. We hope that you subscribe to our podcast. Lots and lots of different podcasting platforms out there. I happen to use Podcast Addict. I know Java here at the at the station uses the Apple podcasting platform. You put it on your smart device touch a plus that takes you to a page to search for podcast i typed in in legal terms in the search area it brings up our show and then i was able to touch the photo and subscribe whenever and i'm notified whenever new episodes are loaded up this morning we're talking about property law with our guest attorney terry little from harper little and in legal terms has a podcast that we did just last month about easements and roads you can listen to that look for the podcast dated may 4th of 2021 we've got an alabama call today this is janice from alabama thanks for calling in what's your comment or question my question is regarding inherited property where there are um, uh, descendants who are involved in very difficult and criminal activities. What, if anything, recourse is there regarding that? Well, Janice, I don't, I'm not sure if I completely understand the situation. Or, or are these people incarcerated? Drugs. We're talking drugs and pedophilia and yada da da da. Come on, we're talking some really bad folks. Right. Burglarizing, coming on in whenever you know. No, we're talking some really bad stuff. And you, you know, you've been through all the other psychological and conversational and whatever and you just gotta I mean cameras yes do cameras even hold up in that sort of stuff if, if the question is to if these people are heirs at law or devisees under a will I would I would say that their property interest remains until the state uh, takes some sort of action to remove their property interests um, you know through the crimes that they're alleged of, I guess. I don't, if you, I don't. If you're, share, if you're a person who shares it, what's your, you know, what they. <laughs> Janice, are you saying if, if people are conducting illegal activities on property that you own, what is your, how responsible are you? Is that what you're asking? Yes, ma'am. Please, thank you so much for, for, for explaining that for me. So yeah, if, I, you, if I Richard and I be... own a property together and Richard gets up to all kinds of shenanigans on the property that are illegal, am I am I just stuck with Richard as my my partner owning the, the land and his shenanigans? 
Yeah, I, th I think the, the answer to that question is you basically just have to notify the appropriate law enforcement agency. And you, I think you just have to follow through with whatever legal process there is for the alleged wrongdoing. I don't think you're going to be able to force the sale of a person's interest or force them to forfeit an interest in property unless there's a statute that allows for that. I don't know of any common law remedy that allows for that. Can an individual forfeit their ownership to property, uh, Terry? Uh, they can voluntarily forfeit their ownership to it, but I'd, the only way that it can be forced is either through some sort of legal process. Um, now, that could happen criminally or it could happen civilly uh, through the civil courts if there is uh, some sort of appropriate legal recourse available to another owner, but I'm, I'm not aware of one right off the top of my head. Richard, did you have something to add? The only thing I can think of is, and, and, you know, people involved in illegal drug trade, uh, there are rules that they can confiscate the, the proceeds from that illegal drug trade. But, you know, property, we have property rights that we have due process as well. And so, it's, fortunately, the government can't just come and take our property away, uh, even if we're not good people. Um, so, but, but there is a process, as Terry said, to, to do that in certain circumstances. But I, I agree, Terry, just, uh, you know, I think the most important thing is to call. If, if these people are doing bad things on your property, you need to let law enforcement know. Thanks, Janice, for calling in. We've got another call in from Beaumont. Sue has called in. Sue, what's your comment or question? Well, uh, I'm sure that I'm hold today. I want to ask you a question. I, I'm, I'm an old lady, so I made out a will and left my daughter, you know, what I've got, the house and a little bit of land. And then we found out that um, when I got to reading the, the will in a quiet moment, I realized that the lawyer did not put down specifically the house and the land. I mean, you have to make out a separate well, I've been told you have to make out a separate document when you leave property to somebody. Otherwise, it has to go through probate, and it costs like three or $4,000 to put it through probate. What is the deal with that? I mean, you, you yeah, so there in your will property, you have to specify a house or, or or land or whatever, or is a separate document. I've been told all kinds of things. Yeah, so there's there's different ways to convey property after you, you are deceased, and uh, typically uh, married people would own property as either joint tenants with right of survivorship or something they call tenants by the entirety with right of survivorship. And when one of them passes, the property passes immediately to the surviving spouse by operation of law, and it does not go through that person's estate. And so there's no need to probate that. Typically, all we have to do is just obtain a certificate of death, and that's proof enough that that the two owners, that one's deceased and that the other person is now fully vested in the title. And then you've got situations where maybe there's no spouse involved. You can, you can still own property as joint tenants with other people, but you could also own it as tenants in common. Uh, if you own property as tenants in common, that property is going to pass pursuant to however you've got your estate set up. So if you've got a will and the will, you know, names certain beneficiaries or devisees, 
and that property will pass to those people. And then if you die without a will, it's going to pass pursuant to the uh, intestate laws of the state of Mississippi. And that's generally your closest surviving family members, which are the first stage is, is basically a spouse and children. So there's, there's different ways to convey property. Sometimes it passes through a person's estate, and sometimes it passes outside of the estate. So do you think I need to have a, go and have another document made out by a lawyer that specifies that my daughter gets the house and land? I mean, how would I do that? Do I have to go have a separate, separate thing made out for that? I don't understand. The first thing, yeah, the first thing I would want to know is I would probably go ask an attorney. I would take the deed to the attorney and ask them how I own this land. Do I own it with anybody else as a joint tenant with right of survivorship? If you do, then... No, it's just me, you know. Okay. So, so if it's just you, then at the time that you died, that property would pass pursuant to your will once that will was probated. And most wills, even if they don't name a specific property to pass, they have what we call a remainder clause that, that basically takes care of everything else that you own, and that might include this property, and it would pass to whoever the name beneficiary or devisee was. Well, I don't know why uh, the lawyer didn't explain that when we were there, because now I'm going to have to go back and have, a, from what I understand, have some kind of separate document made out. That specifies my daughter, so it won't be any questions or anything. You know, just she can just take ownership of that. Is it going to have to go through probate regardless, or what? Unless you were to now, there are things that you can do outside of preparing a will to convey property. There's a new transfer on death deed statute that allows someone to transfer property at the time of their death. Um, and give this transfer on death deed prior to their death. Now, that hasn't gone through. That's This is a new statutory mechanism. It hasn't gone through the Mississippi Supreme Court or the Court of Appeals, so we don't know how that's all going to turn out. But that's one way to transfer it. Another way is to own it as joint tenants with right of survivorship where you put both of y'all on the deed. And then another way is to convey a remainder interest to your daughter and you maintain a life estate in the property. And then at the time that you die, that interest passes to your daughter by operation of law. But I suspect if, if, if you've got a typical will, there's probably a remainder clause. And if your daughter is named as the beneficiary or devisee under that remainder clause, that that property is probably going to pass to her pursuant to the will. But again, you should go back and talk with your attorney to verify that. Sue, we want you to be comfortable with your situation. Uh, Terry, if you had a will, and this isn't lawyerese, if you had a will that said, I, Liz Gill, name Richard Gershon as uh, to have all my worldly goods when I die, I don't have to specify each worldly good and each house I owned or each piece of land I owned. Is that right? Yes, that's right. That's right. Oh, well, I've been told so many things. I didn't know what to think. All right, Sue. Well, Terry and Richard are here to tell you what the law is. They aren't here to give you advice. But if you uh, go to the lawyer who helped you uh, make out the will, then they uh, are your fiduciary. They can uh, represent you. They can give you advice on what you should do from now on. 
We are taking your questions by email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. If you want to hear the beginning of this show, I'll tell you how you can hit rewind. Next, this is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lee Lewis, Hall Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes. That was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Thank you for being part of In Legal Terms. And if you have missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill. I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. At 11 a.m. Central on Tuesdays, following our over-the-air broadcast, you can hear Southern Remedy, relatively speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. I think they're going to talk about Father's Day today. So I uh, wish all of the fathers out there on our program and who are listening and who are working with our program, I hope they have a, a great Father's Day. Now, you might not be able to hit the rewind on the radio if you're listening live, but you can if you're listening on the MPB Public Media app, the MPB Think Radio YouTube channel. You can, if you're listening, tune in on your smart speaker, the iHeartRadio app, or maybe you're listening on Spotify. We're talking with attorney Terry Little from the firm Harper Little about property law. And now we've got a call, not in Alabama or Mississippi, but in Oklahoma. We've got Bobby calling in. Bobby, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Yes, my question is, when you buy a piece of property, whose responsibility is it to see that abstract deed and all that's up to date? Bobby, can you, can you repeat that real he, quick? He asked, whose responsibility is it to see if the abstract in the deed is up to date when you buy a piece of property? 
Okay, yes. So generally the settlement agent uh, is going to do a title search and depending on what kind of property it is, it's, it's a different length title search. It's a 32 years search is the standard for residential property and we go back and make sure that that uh, we know who owns the property, what liens are on the property, what mortgages need to be paid off at the time of closing. And the settlement agent generally also prepares the deed for both parties. Though the seller, you know, can also retain his own attorney to prepare the deed if he would like to. Um, but that's, that's generally the methodology that we use in, in making sure that title is good and then also in, in making sure that we've got a good deed that transfers marketable title to the buyer. Okay. So see, like I bought this piece of property and I got it paid up. They're telling me I got to go pay to have an abstract and all that made up on it. And, and who's responsible for paying those fees is usually set forth in the contract that you have with the other party. And that's, that's generally negotiable. There's no, there's no set standard. Um, there are locality localities that generally, you know, tend to lean one way or the other, as far as the buyer or seller paying those fees, but it is, it is something that's negotiable between the parties. Thank you, Bobby. You uh, be safe. And uh, Terry, I was interpreting from what you said. You said the settlement agent uh, does the, the the abstract search and prepares the deed. Is that the buyer's attorney? What what hits the settlement agent? So the settlement agent is essentially a neutral party, and we represent neither the buyer or the seller in the strictest sense, though we do have fiduciary duties to both. Uh, we, are, we are essentially the entity that takes in money from both sides, holds that money in trust until all sides agree that we've got a settlement statement that, that says what the intent of the contract is. And at that time, they come in, sign documents, authorize us to disperse proceeds, uh, we then give the sellers their money, receive the money, you know, from the buyers, pay off any liens or mortgages that are on the property, and make sure that we pass good marketable title to the buyers. Excellent to know. Now, Terry, we're wrapping up this show. When this show was live, the previous show was Money Talks, and we had a gentleman calling in, and our financial expert suggested a 1031 ex exchange was what he needed. Oh, what is that, and who needs that? Yeah, a 1031 is, is a, a mechanism by which you can defer paying taxes on a piece of property that you own whenever you go to sell it. And that's deferring any gains on, on the sale of the property at the time, provided that you are buying a what they call a like-kind property, which is typically, broadly, just another investment property that's not a principal residence. And you can sell a rental home and buy a commercial building, or you can sell a commercial building and buy a residential rental property. As long as it's not your principal residence, those can be like-kind properties. Raw land can be a like-kind property. Um, but it's called a 1031 because it's the Internal Revenue Code Section 1031. Uh, it does provide you an opportunity to postpone paying any sort of 
taxes on any gains that you make. You do have to reinvest the proceeds into these like-kind properties. The gains deferred into the like-kind property until you sell that property or until you do another 1031 into another property. Apparently you can do as many 1031s as you'd like, as far as I'm aware. Um, Richard may, may say something different. He's more of an expert in the 1031 uh, statute than I am, but we, we handle 1031s and we typically use a qualified intermediary who uh, comes in and holds the seller's funds until they can find an exchange property when they find an exchange property within a certain amount of time, they take those funds and apply it to that purchase. And that way they're exchanging the property without having to pay any sort of gains on that property. Yeah, the great benefit, Terry, don't you agree, is that uh, you get to use your entire proceeds. So you were, you know, if somebody paid $20,000 for property, you know, 30 years ago, and now it's worth substantially more. Uh, if they sold it, took the cash, they would have to pay taxes first before they could buy the replacement property. But by not taking the cash and, and rather having it paid to this qualified intermediary, that allows the gain to be deferred so they get to use the full proceeds from their sale. And that, that's the benefit. Eventually, though, when you do sell out and cash out, then you're going to pay the taxes at that point. Yeah, somebody's going to pay the taxes at some point. I also understand that you can split up the proceeds and buy uh, multiple properties. I, I think there may be a limit, though. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what that is. Do you know, Richard? Right. Well, it depends. It depends on the, the kind of property you're buying. But yeah, you do, as long as you reinvest the proceeds, it, that's less important than the fact that you don't touch the money. That's that's what the government's really concerned about is you don't touch it. And by the way, if the person gives that property ultimately to their children in a will, we talk about a lot of people calling in about talk about that, then that property currently would get a step up in basis. So all that gain would disappear. Uh, and their kids would never have to pay tax on that thing. So this is a poor Susan Butcher suddenly gets to talk about this kind of stuff. But, you know, I'm glad that we do. You know, they don't talk about Section 1031 uh, on the medical shows. And that's too bad. That's sad for them. But, yeah, so, um, yeah, it's a really good tool uh, that people can use in their investments. And if they came to you, what would be your role in a 1031, Terry? Well, gen generally, we're the settlement agent. And so we we're kind of in the same role that we always are in, but the, the qualified intermediary steps into the position of the seller. And so instead of giving the money to the seller, we give it to the qualified intermediary and we make sure that none of the proceeds actually go into the name of the seller. And then the seller has a certain amount of time in which to pick the exchange property. And then there's another transaction that we're not involved in where they take the seller proceeds that were given to the qualified intermediary. The qualified intermediary gives it to the next settlement agent that's handling the purchase, and those proceeds are applied to the purchase in that way. And, and that's that's the way we keep the, the money out of the hands of the seller. As you mentioned, that's what the government's trying to do. Well, I don't have any investment property that has substantially appreciated, but if I did, I would now know all about 1031s, and that's what we're all about. We're educating folks, whether you need the information now or later. I love learning, and I think all of our listeners love learning. Thank you, Terry Little. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Richard. I always enjoy it. 
That's going to wrap us up for today's In Legal Terms. Our call screener has been Java Chapman, I think, and our board engineer is the fabulous Jay White. So for Professor Richard Gershon, who's on summer break, oh, or maybe summer school has already started, at the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill, but we do hope you join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. live, Central for In Legal Terms, heard on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.